Well, the Christmas traditions have begun in the Myers household every year. One of the first traditions we do to kick everything off is we go get our Christmas tree day after Thanksgiving. Uh, the past couple years, we have ventured out to the uh, fresh mountain air of Wisebys here in Roseville. Because nothing says Christmas like getting a tree for under 10 bucks. This year, however, we did something new. A friend of mine, Patrick, had told me about it years ago and remembered it this year. It's amazing. You can go to the forest department and you can give them 10 bucks. And they'll give you a permit. And with that permit, you can just drive up into the mountains and you can chop down your own tree. Not like a Christmas tree farm. Just anywhere you can just venture out and get a tree. So... If you've seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, great movie. Maybe you should start that tradition in your home. I anticipated that. We're just going to hike out in the snow, and the clouds are going to part, and the ray of sunshine is going to come down, right, on on the right tree. So that happened. In fact, we got three trees, uh, three 12-foot silver tip trees. Now, here's the funny part, though. We, we didn't think to drive a truck or bring a trailer up there, so we were all piled into my friend Patrick's compact Toyota Tercel. So we strapped down three enormous Christmas trees to the top of this car. Do- we couldn't even open the doors. <laughs> We could not even open the doors. We had a Dukes of Hazard it in through the windows. It was completely dark in the car because there's literally trees just all around. All we could see out was the windshield. Every car that passed us on the way home had their phone or camera out their window. I'm sure you can find us on YouTube if you just Google white trash Christmas and it's sure to come up. It's going to be a top hit. It was, it was unbelievable. It was wonderful. So that's, that's our new tradition. We're just going to try to find a smaller car next year. <laughs> we love Christmas. We're going to have a great time uh, here at Christmas at Veritas, Lord willing. Um, next few weeks, we're going to wrap up our sermon series that we're in right now, in 2 Timothy. And then we'll have a couple weeks at the end of December uh, where we'll go topical and look at um, right around Christmas and New Year's Day. And then beginning in January, um, we're going to start a sermon series through the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis is 50 chapters. And you know how we preach here. It's going to take a while. So we're planning on 2013. That's what we're going to do. We're going to study through the book of Genesis. So if you want to read ahead, that would be great. If you want to pray for that series, that would be great. But we're looking forward to that right around the corner. But we've still got some work to do here in 2 Timothy. So today, as Pastor Curtis read, we're going to be in chapter 3. And we're going to get through verses 1 through 9. Before we do that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. And we are the most thankful of people. We are thankful not because of what you have done outside us, but because of what you have done inside us. You have changed the root of who we are by opening our eyes and opening our hearts to see, to hear, to know that you are a good God, that you are great, that you are gracious, and you have through your Son, Jesus Christ, extended incalculable mercy to us. 
So we're gathered together today, as you know, hoping to hear from your word. God, I pray that as I preach, that you would help me to preach well in a way that is helpful and in a way that brings you honor and glory. And I pray that there would only be truth spoken. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, it would be spoken in such a way that it rattles our hearts. That change happens within because we've been confronted with the truth from you. So we hope for this and we pray for this in the name of and for the sake of your Son, who is Jesus the Christ. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So the when and the what here first. Here's that phrase that you've probably heard before. The spooky phrase, last days. Right? Which may conjure up any number of images for you. Okay? Maybe you picture uh, the end of all things and, and, and earthquakes and, and the rapture and people flying through the air and unmanned airplanes and, and predictions and dates and the earth opening up and people being swallowed. I don't know what you picture in your mind, but when we hear last days, it can conjure up a lot of different ideas. Now, when your Bible uses this phrase, last days, what it actually refers to is the time between Jesus going up to heaven and Jesus coming back down from heaven. So, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus suffered, Jesus died, and Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And then Jesus ascended, he went up to be at the right hand of God the Father. And that is where Jesus is right now. And that happened roughly 2,000 years ago. But Jesus made a promise. And the promise Jesus made is that, I am coming back. Hey, we're getting ready to celebrate the first advent of God. So there will be a, a second advent of Christ. So the period of time between... The ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus, that is the last days. Now, there will be last, last days and end of days. But right now, you live in the last days. And we have no idea. We have no idea how long that's going to be. You may hear guys on the radio saying, you know, it's going to be this date and it's going to be that date. But we have no idea. No idea. We know it's at least a couple thousand years because here we are a couple thousand years in. And this is what Paul says you can expect during those last days. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. So this is going to be the difficult season, the last days. And when it comes to your life, here's what you can expect to be the difficult season. It's going to be that season right between when you're born and you die. Right? And that's going to be the difficult season for your life. If you're, if you're in a season right now that's not difficult, it's very possible that you're just out to lunch. And it actually is difficult. But we do know that we've had seasons, right, where things just seem to go, seem to go well. You can be sure that's not going to last. 
Right? The Bible just makes it clear. We don't want you to be surprised. Okay, there's no, there's no proselytizing here in this church where we tell you, come and become a Christian because everything will go well. We can't even say that with a straight face. Because we know it's not true. God will go well. And God will be good. And God will be faithful. And God will be gracious. And you will have strength. And you will find mercy. And there will be the grace that you need. But it will not go well. Paul tells Timothy, in the last days, which we are in right now, these will be difficult times. And here we are right in the middle of these last days. We should expect nothing different. It's going to be a difficult season. King James Version says, perilous. Or if you have an NIV, it says, terrible times. You can expect there to be terrible times. He goes on. For people, and now he's going to describe people. So if you just caught what he said, he said, the last days are going to be a very difficult time for you. And the reason is people. This is why life is difficult. People. This is why your life is difficult. People. This is what gets messed up in your life. It's caused by people. Now, we may have things like Hurricane Sandy. Or we may have natural disasters. We may have things that, that are not coming from people that are going to bring times of difficulty into our life. But, predominantly... The perilous times you're going to face, the terrible times you're going to face, the difficulty that you and I are going to face is because this earth is populated with people. And with people comes difficulty. And with people come terrible times. So all of us can expect that because here we are as people. So this is what Paul is doing. Here we have... In the verses that are following, we have a description of the false teaching leaders who are leading people astray in Timothy's church. There are people who are leading in Timothy's church and the things that they're doing and the things that they're coming out of their mouth, they are not helpful. They're not leading people to God. They're leading people away from God. And here's the deal. These people are still around. We should not read this and think, oh, here's a glimpse into first century Christianity. We should read this and know that here is a glimpse into Christianity. Here's a glimpse into the church. These leaders that Timothy was dealing with are still around. Okay, these people are still leading in our churches. These people are still leading in your families. These people are still leading in your social circles, in your society, in your neighborhoods. These people that Paul is describing are still here. So it's important for us to pay careful attention. For people will be, the first thing he says about them, is lovers of self. This gets us into so much trouble. 
In the last days, there will come times of difficulty because people will be lovers of themselves. And he's going to give a bunch of adjectives describing these people. But there's these two bookend phrases. The first one is in verse 2. Lovers of self. And the second one is at the end of verse 4. Rather than lovers of God. And everything that Paul describes about them is going to come between. They are lovers of themselves. They are not lovers of God. These are his bookends as he describes these people that we are to watch out for. So what this is, biblically speaking, is inverse love. This is backwards love. This is wrong love. This is anti-creational love. This is not the kind of love that you have been designed to exhibit. Okay, you and I have not been created by God to love ourselves. You have been made, created, and designed to love God. You and I have been created to make much of God. We have not been created to love ourselves. We have not been made to love ourselves. And when we get that backwards and we turn that on its head and we become lovers of ourselves rather than lovers of God, bad things happen. So with these people, an inversion has taken place in their hearts. Okay, there is something that is backwards in their heart and where there should be love for God And making much of God, there is, I love myself. There is making much of myself. Do you know that in the Bible, God's word, he never once calls us to love ourselves. That is our culture. That is the world we live in. The world we live in says, Make a big deal of you. Spend time with people who make a big deal of you. Love yourself. Surround yourself with people who love you. Jesus never sat down his disciples. Never once did he sit down his disciples and say, Listen, I want you to love others, but before you love others, you must love... What's the expression? Yourself. That is how we think. You must love yourself before you can love others. Jesus never said that to his disciples. He never called them to love themselves. He said, I love you. That's enough. I love you. Don't love yourself. Don't think about yourself. In fact, he goes so far as to command them to do the opposite of loving yourself. And that's denying yourself. Not only does God say to us, do not love yourself. That will not go well for you. You may feel like you have to love yourself. Oh, but how can I love others if no one's filling up my love tank? Right? This is how we talk. And I need someone pouring into me. And if no one's pouring into me, I just don't have anything to give. And so I need you. I need you, brother. I need you, sister. I need you, sweetheart. I need you to love me so that I can obey God and love others. God doesn't say that. 
That is not biblical philosophy. God says, I'll do the pouring. I'll love you. I'll pour into you. I'll take care of you. I'll keep it coming. Your job is to focus outward. Okay, number one, vertically, me. Created to love God. And you won't be happy if you're loving anyone else, especially if you're loving yourself. Have you not experienced how miserable it is to love yourself? It is hard work. It is really hard work to love me. Because the more time I spend with me, honestly, the less I like me. God says vertically, love me and then love others. God fills us. God loves us. God takes care of us. He says, and I want you to love me, God says. I want you to worship me. And then I want you to be my instruments as I love others through you. So you will hear things like you need to love yourself. You will hear things like you need to think highly of yourself. And I'll tell you what, if there wasn't a God who loved you, I would say that's pretty good. But that is an idea that comes from the denial that there is a God who loves you. And the reality and truth is, friends, the good reality and the good truth and the good news is that our God is a loving God. He is a good God. He is a gracious God who loves and cares for us. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 2, verse 37 and 39, His disciples say, what's the greatest commandment? We're hearing a lot of rules, a lot of commands. Can you summarize? And Jesus said, number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what God calls us to do. So as we're going to see here, when people don't love God and start loving themselves, bad things happen. That can just be the overarching principle over this message and over Paul's words to Timothy here. When people stop loving God and start loving themselves, bad things happen. And now he goes on and describes them with all these adjectives. A lot of words he's going to use. Eight couplets. He gives them, he gives them in pairs of words. And we're going to look now at eight of them. And remember that this is the Holy Spirit's description of a reality in people's hearts. There really are people like this. Now let me bring that closer to home. You may be this person. You may be this person. So when we read this, we've got to read it with a that guy, this guy mentality that says, okay, I need to be, be mindful that there are people like this because he's going to give us some instruction. I need to watch out. But you also need not only think about that guy, you need to think about this guy. And you need to look at yourself and examine yourself and to see whether or not you are someone who looks great on the outside, but the inside is a mess. He's going to summarize by saying these people have the appearance of godliness. So you all look very nice today. You all look very nice today. You smell good. You look good. And you, you came dressing the part. We all did, right? But you and I both know 
that what we see out here may not line up with what's inside. Now, Paul means to confront that. And he wants all of you, right, like an onion, to pull back those layers and to look within and to examine yourself and to see whether or not you're in some trouble. So read it with that mentality. Now, some of you as well are either on, you're on opposite ends of the spectrum, either optimistic when it comes to people or pessimistic when it comes to people. So some of you, when we read this, you think it's everybody. Like that's, that's, that's everybody here. And you, you're very skeptical. And you're very critical. And you, you, you meet somebody and there's other people around you and they all love the person and you're, you're going home and Googling their name because you're just convinced that they are not who they say they are. And you see everybody through this jaded lens. And you're, and you're pessimistic. And you might need to you know, thin the crowd a bit and really determine who are these people. But others of you are in a danger where you're overly optimistic. And everybody else around you is saying, yeah, you just stay away from that guy. And you're saying, oh, I don't know. I think he's fine. And you're too optimistic. And you need to remember that things may look good on the outside, but you need to look for this. Because Paul's going to have some instruction for us. And you need to see whether or not these people are among us. So let's get started with the first couplet here. Verse, verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. People who love themselves more than they love others, they also love money. And the reason is because money is a means to satisfy themselves. Money is a way to get what they want. And we talked about money recently in 1 Timothy 6.10. Remember we read that money is the root of all kinds of evil when you love it. That's when money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is neutral. Money is actually a tool. It's a tool that God gives us. And money is supposed to be used for good. Supposed to be used for good things. But when money is just used to satisfy myself, when all of my spending terminates on me, then I might be a lover of money. Those who are lovers of themselves, it's a way to evaluate yourself or others, they spend a lot of money on themselves. Okay, I've got to have the new video game. I've got to have the new TV. I've got to have a new bowling ball. I don't know what you guys do. I've got to have these new things. And it's going to satisfy my wants and, and my desires. And I've got my toys. And I've got my hobbies. And you've seen men who do this. You've seen husbands and fathers who do this. And they spend money like this. And then they go and they leave their wife and their kids. And they go do these things with the other husbands and fathers who are leaving their wives and their kids. And they go do these things together. That is someone who loves himself. Lovers of themselves and lovers of money. The proper mindset to keep from being a lover of money and a lover of yourself is to those of you who are husbands and fathers and have a household you're responsible for, right? Money is a tool. And money is a tool to provide for your family. That's what money is for. Money is to provide for your family. You work. You go to a job. And you sweat and work long hours and wear yourself out 
mentally, physically, emotionally, and you do that to provide for your family. And that's what work is about, by the way. Work is not supposed to be a means to your fulfillment. I was talking with a friend of mine this week who says, how are we going to train up our boys? Right, so that they grow up thinking that work is a good thing, not something to be avoided like the plague, but work is a good thing, and it's a good thing because it can provide for themselves and provide for their family. And we said, we need to somehow not instill in them what everyone else is trying to instill in them, and that is when you're thinking about your future and you're thinking about work and you're thinking about a job, think about what it is that will fulfill you. And so everybody has the same job in mind. I want a job where it's not many hours, relatively simple work, a lot of money. And that's why you have people who graduate from high school and graduate from college. I didn't even know you could graduate from college without a declared major. But it can happen, apparently. And people still don't know what they want to do. Why? Because it's a backwards view of work and money. We shouldn't be looking to be fulfilled. If you work and you enjoy your work, you are in the minority. You are blessed. But for many of you, especially you men who are husbands and fathers, you will not find fulfillment in your job itself. The fulfillment comes in knowing that the work you're doing puts food on a table. And that is fulfilling. Because you're doing what God has commanded you to do. And it'll put a shelter over your family. And it'll put clothes on their back. That is good. And that is not a lover of money. My money just goes in this hand, and then I just hand it to my wife. And it's groceries. There's nothing exciting. You have some purchases you buy, and they're really exciting. And then there's groceries and gas. I mean, not many of you are pumping gas. But I'm like, oh, this is, this is wonderful. I don't know, look at that. Three... Three digits. Wow. We're not thinking like that. This is what I love about my wife. My, lo- my wife loves to buy groceries. She's thankful. She comes home with, and, and, and just with bags of groceries and calls me into the kitchen and starts pulling things out of grocery bags. And look, what, look what we have. Look, look at this organic lettuce. And, and look, at, look at this fruit. And, and look at this. And look at these. And, and, and we're thankful. That's, that's a good thing to spend money on. We don't just want to hoard, right, and feed our earthly passions and desires. We need to be careful. These people are lovers of self, and therefore they are lovers of money. He goes on, proud and arrogant. Do we even know anymore that pride is a sin? See, we hear that pride is a virtue. The exact opposite of what the Bible says. You could go so far as to say that humility is considered a vice in our day and age and a weakness. And pride is seen as a virtue. We have synonyms for it like self-esteem. Think really well of yourself. Think very highly of yourself. And don't let anybody do anything different. And build a network of relationships that supports your pride. And feeds your pride. Where all your friends just come up to your idol and they just polish it for you. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. You are 
wonderful. And we're proud like that. And we think self-inflating thoughts like that, it leads to arrogance. It leads to arrogance. It leads to bragging. It leads to boasting. We are called to boast as Christians, but not in ourselves. Those of us who know ourselves know there's not much to boast about except Christ in us. Psalm 34, 2 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. We ought not to be proud and arrogant. So, not only are these people lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, it says that they're abusive and disobedient to parents. There is... There's dysfunction in those close relationships, those family relationships. Those relationships are abusive, can be physically abusive, but there are many other forms of abusive relationships, emotionally and with words and manipulation. Okay, and these people, when you start looking, getting closer to the heart of who they are, and you get behind the closed doors, in the car, on the way home from church. Right? You start to see that there is abuse, that there is disobedience to parents. Disobedience to parents is a really big deal. A really big deal. And families should be concerned about children who are disobedient, and churches should be concerned to have their children be obedient to their parents. And they should encourage this. Because here's how it goes. Children who disobey their parents every time become adults who disobey God. Every time. God means to teach a child when he is young that he is under authority. And that he needs to be submissive. And that, Lord willing, that there are people over him who are gracious and have his best in mind. And isn't that the case when you grow up, Christian? God is an authority over you. He loves you and is gracious to you unconditionally and He provides for you and knows what's best for you. And ideally, when you're young, you have parents who are an image of God in your life. So it's a big problem when kids are disobeying their parents. But again, we live in a day, in these last days, where obeying your parents is just sort of winked at. It is, it is not a big deal. In fact, oftentimes, children are exalted... Right? And lifted up and put on pedestals while parents are demeaned. Do, do you watch television shows? You can admit it. It's safe. We, we're okay with TV here, in case you're wondering. Do you watch, just watch television and, and look at the dads in TV shows? Even cartoons. My boys watch this cartoon, right? It's called, sometimes, it's called Phineas and Ferb. It's pretty funny. But you want to show and it's this brother and his sister and then they have a stepbrother. It's this blended family. And you look at the dad in that show and dad is a mess. He is, he is just a mess. He's totally scatterbrained. He can never find anything. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's totally unhelpful. And everybody just kind of laughs. The whole family just sort of laughs behind his back. But then the kids have a really smart platypus. And that's who they go to for advice. And counsel. And the pet is very intelligent and very smart and very helpful. But dad can't find his glasses. And so the message, right? The, and, what, and in the show, who's always solving the problems? The kids. 
are solving the problems. And so the message is, right, that, eh, you know, maybe, maybe not. Jury's still out. Not so sure about him. Right? Platypus, pretty smart. You might want to just talk to your pets. Or you want sitcoms, like a popular one today. My wife and I like it. It's funny. Modern Family. Now, we really don't want to admit we watch that, right? But Modern Family has this classic, right? This classic modern husband-father that promotes this disobedience to your parents and disrespect of your parents because he's not respectable. Phil Dunphy, right? Just, you should watch the show sometime. And you see, he's, he's not very smart. He's not. He's portrayed as not being very bright. He has a daughter that's way smarter than him. He's extremely passive, very passive, very indecisive. No one seeks his counsel. He's just a knucklehead. And he lies all the time, but it's just kind of playful and funny. He lies so that he doesn't displease his wife who runs the home. And his only good quality that the show puts out there is like, but, but he's a wonderful husband and father. Why? Because he is sweet and submissive. That's it. He is sweet and submissive. So everything gets turned on its head. Now, children, why would you obey him? Why would you respect him? This is a sign of the last days. Okay, we're in the last days where there will be abusive relationships, where there will be, where disobedience to parents will become rampant. He goes on, they are ungrateful and unholy. Some of you really struggle with being grateful even at Thanksgiving. Even at Thanksgiving. All of you have something to be grateful for. All of us. Now we can get introspective and we can, we can get on a course very easily where it's difficult to count our blessings. But that is sinful. And some of you are ungrateful. You're insatiable. This is never enough. You can't even see the blessings that are in your life because you're so consumed with the things that aren't going the way you want them to go, with the things that you think you have a right to them having gone a different way. But the truth is, we have no rights. We belong to God. And He takes care of us. And if you're here today, which you are, if you're breathing, which... I hope all of you are. When you put your hand here and you can feel that heart beating, you've got good clean air that you're breathing into your lungs, you've got clean water you can go and drink in between after service, you are blessed. You have more to be grateful for than most of the world right now. You know, some of us are ungrateful. We don't live lives that flow out of gratitude. We're ungrateful and some of these people are unholy, just in opposition to God. Unholy. In other words, not receiving the things from God with thankfulness and not giving anything to God. Not living holy. Not living set apart. Are you concerned with holiness? Are you concerned with being like Jesus? Are you concerned with obedience to God? Is that a primary concern in your life? Or do you just want to be liked and loved 
and winsome and friendly and popular and accomplished and successful? Or do you want to be holy? Because those will most likely run into each other often. These people are ungrateful, they're unholy, heartless, unappeasable. Hard hearts. Heartless, hard hearts. No regard for others. Unappeasable. Are some of you unappeasable? You cannot be pleased. Another translation of this word is irreconcilable. Are you the kind of person if somebody crosses you, it's done. Forget reconciliation. We looked at that last week. Some of you have people who are in this room right now that you're going to avoid eye contact with. Because you're irreconciled. But we mustn't be irreconcilable people. We should be people who want to be reconciled. And we should be people who can forgive. There is no such thing among Christians as irreconcilable differences. That is a worldly that is a worldly experience. Should not happen in the church. Well, relationships become stressed. Will 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 dynamics of relationships change? Absolutely. Will will certain parts? Yeah, those things can change. But there is never an excuse for two people who love Jesus to not be reconciled with one another. There's never an excuse for that. But some people are just unappeasable. It doesn't matter what the person does. It doesn't matter what the person says. They can never make it up to you. They can never gain any ground with you. They're just, they're dead to you. And we should not be like that. Rather, we're to be a people who are willing to forgive, which means to to put it behind us, to forget it, to overlook it, to move past it. This is what we, through Christ, are unable to do. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus? And they had a guy in mind who just wouldn't stop, kept doing the same sin over and over again. And they'd forgiven him like six times and they come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, how many times here? You know this guy. You've seen what he's doing. It's pretty bad, right? How many times? And what do they say? Seven? Because I'm pretty sure he's about to hit seven. And then we can be done with this guy. And Jesus' response is basically infinitely. Forgive him again. Is he repentant? Forgive him again. What if he just keeps doing this? I mean, you see this this cycle, Jesus. I mean, I've got to protect myself. I've got to get boundaries up. I mean, how's my love tank going to get filled with this guy? And Jesus says, don't worry about it. He says, forgive him. And what is the rationale for forgiving the one who has sinned against you? Is it that, well, he's all nice and he's friendly now and he's paid restitution and he's made it up to you and now he's on your good side and he's refriended you on Facebook and he, he apologized to the whole world on a microphone about the sins he committed against you? It has nothing to do with what they do, right? There is a level of forgiveness that we can all extend and the reason is because we have been forgiven. Jesus says, forgive him. Because you have been forgiven much. Can you imagine if there was a lid on God's forgiveness for you? God says, okay, Christian, here's your cup. 
Don't sin. Every time you sin, another drop goes in this cup. And eventually, I'm going to put a lid on it and I'm cutting you off. you imagine if God extended Himself to us in that way? Not one of us would stand justified. Not one of us would stand clean. Not one of us would be here today forgiven. We would all be lost. But we have been what? Forgiven much. That's why you and I forgive. That's why. These people will be slanderous without self-control. Slanderous without self-control. The word slanderous is diabolos. It's a name for Satan. A slanderer. What comes out of the mouth is bad things about other people. Without self-control, he says. This is what happens. Every one of you has a vent, and it's right here. Okay, and Proverbs talks about giving full vent to your spirit, giving full vent to your anger, and that's when we slander. Right? Some of you have friends you sit down with and you say things like, I need to vent, which means I need to sin. Will you sit down with me while I sin? Will you just quietly listen and appease me while I talk about people who aren't in this room right now? Can I just vent with you? And that's a mark of like true friendship. That's how messed up we are. Who are the people that you can vent to? Who are the people you can sin with? Those are your real friends. The Bible doesn't talk that way. Some of you give full vent to your anger, and some of you are slanderous. Some of you are like Satan that way. You're like Diabolos. Some of us need to remember what we were taught when we were younger. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Two good things come from that. You don't say anything bad. In fact, you don't say anything. We're quiet. And you know I'm a big advocate for being quiet. If you don't have anything good to say, there are times where we just need to, we just need to close. It's so hard to do sometimes, isn't it? We need to close. Well, these people are slanderers without self-control. Brutal. Not loving good. I'm wondering if any of these have hit you yet. If they haven't, you might be deluded. Brutal. Not loving good. No, no concern. Right? In the heart, and the motives, and intentions. No concern for what is good. No concern for loving others. Right? Loving myself. Could mean I'm even brutal. Treacherous and reckless. Treacherous is this word used to describe Judas as the traitor in Luke chapter 6. Some of us are traitors. I love you as long as you love me. I'm good to you as long as you're good to me. But you cross certain lines with me and we're done. We're traitors. We're a treacherous people. And we're friendly when it's convenient for us and when it suits us. But when it's not, and when our desires change, we want something different, we move on. Or reckless. These people are reckless. Or other words to describe this are thoughtless. Or rash. Impulsive. Some of you are reckless. You don't think as long as you should about the decisions you make. 
Right? Some of you are the person that just loses it at work and just says, I quit. Some of you poor gals are married to this reckless guy. I quit. Done. Or, let's get married. Been on a couple dates. It's gone well. We can go to Reno. Or let's get divorced. Hasn't gone well for a couple months. Fickle. Inconsistent. Make rash decisions. Some of you just will do anything anybody asks you to do. You don't think about the load it's going to be or how it's going to cost those you love or your family. But you just, you so need others to be pleased with you that anytime anybody asks you anything, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Pretty soon you've got a list that's a mile long and you're displeasing everybody. It doesn't go well. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. You hear that phrase? Swollen with conceit. This is arrogance just gone wild. If we're not careful, we can be people who are swollen with conceit. This is where the self-evaluation, right? The self-evaluation leads to boasting. In other words, we... We brag to ourselves. We brag about ourselves. We surround ourselves with people who are going to tell us how good and, and great and wonderful we are. And pretty soon we're swollen with conceit. We've believed it. Some of you thought that there were things that you were good at. And then finally somebody honest came along and said, you know, you're not good at that. You're like, well, my, my mommy told me I was good at this. <laughs> Since I was four, you know this grown-up, right? Who grew up in the home where his all he ever heard is, "You're so wonderful, you're so amazing, you could do no wrong, you're perfect, you're the most special being on the planet, you're my little bundle of wonderfulness." And and this, you know, the child, you know, he grows up, he becomes swollen with conceit. He believes it. He actually believes it. And somebody confronts him, and he can't believe it. Because his mom told him from the time he was young that he was perfect. Now, now I, I tell my kids I love them, and they're amazing, and they're wonderful. But I also tell them, you are wicked little sinners. <laughs> you are messed up. And the problem is deep. <laughs> and it's pretty hopeless, buddy. <laughs> I'm, pu- I'm, I'm pushing for tears. I'm like, come on, are you really, are you sure you got a hold of this one, pal? Because it's ugly. <laughs> Of course, I draw alongside him and say, you're just like daddy. You're just like daddy. And I'm just like our greatest daddy, Adam. And we're just following in his footsteps. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need grace. This is why we need mercy. This is why we, why we need God. We get swollen with conceit. Some of you are conceited. Some of you think that you are something that you're not. Some of you think that you're good at things that you're not. If you, you've seen this in American Idol, right? Those first few episodes where you have all these people who think they're good at something that they're not good at. But they're convinced, convinced that they are wonderful singers. And this panel of professionals is out to lunch and wrong. And these people are also have no humility. Right? They are swollen with conceit. And then they come outside and they've got like a hundred people who are surprised. At least they're acting surprised. 
And these are the people who've been telling them since the time they were young, oh, you're wonderful, you're a good singer, when they should have said, don't ever do that again. (laughs) Don't ever open your mouth around people and try to have melody come out. Because when you sing, people leave and they hurt. See, it's in church and, and in ministries and people want to be in, in certain limelights and want to have certain, certain accomplishments and want to be certain accolades. And so they strive after certain ministries and, and they end up doing things that they're really not good at. And nobody comes along and says, you know, you're not good at this. I'm sure you're good at something. And that's okay. I'm sure you're good at something, but we need to keep looking. This isn't it. Can we say that and not be offended? We become swollen with conceit. Right, so we're laughing at that, but, but some of us are realizing, yeah, there might just be some areas where I am conceited. My pride, my arrogance has gotten a real hold of me. And I need to be humbled. Swollen with conceit. And now the other bookend here, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pleasure is a good thing. Pleasure is a good thing. It has been wired into all of us to seek pleasure. There is nothing any of you can do to stop wanting to be pleased in your life. But do you understand that that has been put in you by the author of you and it is meant to drive you to God? Because you will only be pleased in God. Psalm 16 says there are eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Which is why C.S. Lewis said, when we stop short and we just take all the, the things in this world and are pleased with them and we stop short of God, he says that we're people who are far too easily pleased. We should keep going. Not to the gifts, but to the giver. And when we become lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, not only are we missing it, but we're actually not finding real pleasure. It's a lie. It's a lie. We think we've found it, right? We think that it can't get any better than this. But the truth is, it can get way better than this in Christ. He summarizes them here in verse 5 with this summarizing statement. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So here's, here's how this works. There is an appearance of Godliness. So this is why when you hear this list, okay, you can't just look around the room right now and pick this person out. This is why you can't be quick to assume that you're not one of these people. Because we're all going to have in the church an appearance of godliness. This is what it means to be godly, right? To be godly means that I am godly oriented. It means that I am God-centered. It means that God is the center of everything in my life. I am after Him. I am for Him. I am about Him. And everything and anything else is a means to glorifying God. And when I think like that, I am being godly. And holiness is living that out. But there is the appearance of godliness, where the external is nice and shiny. He's writing to a church. He doesn't say, okay, Timothy, I want you to give this letter to those outside your church. He's reading it like we're reading it in a public gathering of the church. He's saying, watch out, because there's some of the appearance of godliness, but 
denying its power. The power of godliness. The power of the gospel. The power of truth. Those who deny that don't actually believe that. There is no internal change. But on the outside, things look pretty good. And we have all these appearances of godliness. Well, this person was baptized. Saw him baptized. The appearance of godliness. You come up and take communion every week. The appearance of godliness. You're in fellowship. You're here weekly in church. Looks like the appearance of godliness. You participate. When we sing songs, you sing songs. That's the appearance of godliness. When you have conversations, we may get even closer. We listen. Good things are coming out of your mouth. It is the appearance of godliness. But it is possible. This is what should frighten us. It is possible to have those ducks in a row. It is possible to have this appearance of godliness and yet inwardly there is no love for God. There is no love of His gospel and love of His truth. Paul says, be careful. J.C. Ryle put it this way. They are neither truthful, nor loving, nor humble, nor honest, nor kind, nor gentle, nor giving, nor honorable. What shall we say of these people? They claim to be Christians, and yet there is neither substance nor fruit in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said. They are formal Christians, their religion is only an empty form. You want to know the most frightening part? This guy doesn't know he's this guy. Let me say that again. Because this is what's frightening, right? Because here we are. We're saying, okay, I'm not this person, I'm not this person, I'm not this person, I'm not this person. But now what we're seeing is this person doesn't know they're that person. That should scare the out of you. This is why Scripture calls you to examine yourself. And it says, make your calling and election sure. This is why 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him that thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. You think you stand? You think you're good? You think you're fine? No need to examine? No need to look deep? No need to pull back the layers? He says, take heed, lest you fall. Some have the appearance of godliness, but inside this description that Paul gives, this is who they are. Just a couple things. How do we deal with that if we could be this one and not know we're this one? Number one, examine yourself. Many don't even do that. We ought to examine ourselves. Some of you have been told not to examine yourself. Some of you have wrestled with your faith and wondered whether or not it's legit. 
And you had people tell you, don't worry about that. And that was the worst counsel they could have given you. And so you need to go back there and dig that up and examine it. And evaluate yourself. Charles Spurgeon said this, He that is not willing to search himself should stand self-incriminated by that unwillingness to look at his affairs. If you're unwilling to look at yourself, chances are you are this guy. Because you know what you'll find. You should pray. You should pray. God, lay me out. Search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Help me to see the heart. Give me insight into my motives, into my desires, into my intentions. God, give me insight into this inner man, this inner woman, and help me see what might need to change. Then a third thing he gets into here. The one instruction he gives. One instruction. Avoid such people. That doesn't sound Christian. You hear what he just said? He said, stop returning their calls. Walk away from them. Don't spend any more time with them. Proverbs 13.20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You will suffer harm. So who are these people we're talking about? Whether it's you, me, others, it is those who say they love Jesus, who claim to know Jesus, and they do not live accordingly. You avoid those people, Paul says. Avoid them. These aren't people who say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. Don't avoid them. Love them. Befriend them. Share the gospel with them. But if you've got those in your church who say, yeah, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. But they don't give a rip about living accordingly. Paul says, avoid those people. Kick those people out, he says elsewhere. Warn them once. Warn them twice. After that, have Nothing to do with them. Don't get together for coffee. Don't email them. Avoid them. Take your own holiness seriously. Protect yourself. Protect your church. Protect your family. You're going to see in a minute. They seduce people. And you may suffer harm. You may just fall into their snare. So avoid them. Now here's the thing. You say, how do I know... Whether or not this person. What if I'm the guy who is this guy and doesn't know it and I'm deluded? Well, Lord willing and hopefully you're in a church where people will avoid you. That is grace to you. Because if you've got a church where this doesn't happen and we don't draw lines in the sand. And we're just like, oh, well, I can't judge. That is the biggest pile. We are called to judge one another in the church. What does the Bible say? Don't judge those outside. So don't go holding your Prop 8 sign and screaming at people on the other side. Do not judge those outside the church. But those inside the church, judge. Look at their life. Draw conclusions. Go to them. We're to do that. 
And sometimes you start avoiding such people. And when you avoid them, it is grace in their life. So they don't live their whole day in a church that doesn't practice what they preach and the person just goes deluded attending Sunday school every Sunday consistently all the way to hell. Because no one ever made the call and avoided them. We should be a church out of love. Out of love for those we love. Out of love for those we're concerned with, who is willing to avoid such people. Verse 6. And that was all who they are, and now here's what they do. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Wow. They're creepers. They're creepers looking for people who are weak, looking for people who are susceptible, looking for people who don't know their doctrine real well, looking for new Christians. Okay, find some chink in the armor, some weakness, something they can grab onto and seduce them into their false teaching. They capture weak women who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So we're avoiding these people because they will seduce, they will lead us into their folly. And in first century Ephesus, they had a particular disciple of these false teachers or victim, and it was these weak women. Weak women who were what? Who were burdened with sin. I'm not so sure we don't still have weak women who need to be protected and kept from these kinds of men. There were then and surely there are today some women who are weak, who have who have desires for things other than God that tend to consume them. I just want to be loved. I just want to be married. I just want to have children. And these desires become more important than God Himself. And there are men who will come into our churches, guys, and who will prey on these gals. And who will give them what they want and who will say what they want and lead them off and turn out not to be the men we all thought they were. Paul says, be careful. There are those who are weak. There are many among us who are are weak, and who are gullible, and who are more vulnerable to false teaching. Some of you may not be. Maybe some of you are just oaks and... It doesn't matter what the heresy is. You can sniff it out a mile away. You can see it coming. You know it. You're not falling for anything. And some of you are very gullible. It may be because you're new in the faith. It may be because you've been raised in churches that didn't really teach you well or didn't teach the difference between good doctrine and bad doctrine. It may be that you just have difficulty grasping certain truths. But some of you are, are gullible. So you need to be extra careful. 
And some of you will hear things that will sound very good and they won't be the gospel and you will fall for them. The gospel, remember, is very guilt-inducing. Most of us don't like that. The gospel starts with you're a mess. And we, we don't want to think that. We want a gospel that says, well, no, I'm good and God's good and so we belong together. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're not good. God is good. God is just, and justice for you would be eternal punishment in hell. But God is also merciful and saves you through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But that's, that's guilt-inducing when I face myself. And some of you are weak. And you'll fall for something that just pushes that off to the side. And doesn't take you to God, but takes you to prosperity or self-esteem or community, or something other than God. And he provides an example. Just as Jamnus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. These guys are famous, again, famous, but not, not in a good way. These names don't show up in your Old Testament, but they show up in other Hebrew writings. They're the names that are given to two of the false prophets or sorcerers that were there in Exodus chapter 7 when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh. That's what he's calling their attention to as an example. He's saying, these men that you have now in your churches, they're like these two guys. So here's the story, right? God tells Moses and Aaron, I want you to go before Pharaoh, right? I want you to draw a line in the sand. I want you to tell him he needs to let my people go or trouble's coming. And Moses is he's already, you know, having a panic attack. He's very worried. He's very concerned, but he trusts the Lord. And so he goes. And you remember what happens? This little showdown between him as a prophet of the one true God and then all these false prophets and these sorcerers and magicians. And so God tells Moses, Moses, take Aaron's staff and throw it on the ground. And he does. And God turns it into a snake. That's impressive. That is impressive. If we threw down a broomstick and it turned into a snake, we'd all be getting charismatic. (laughs) But then you remember what happened. And it always surprises me when the other team gets what looks like a win. Because then the two sorcerers, Janus and Jambres, they throw down their staffs and they turn into snakes. You're like, what? My God, you you had the opportunity there. Just don't, just have, it would have just been great, right? You know, they throw the staffs and they just bounce around and they just stand there for a few minutes waiting and nothing. That would have been a great ending, but God had a better ending in mind. You remember the story. So they, now there's two snakes, right? Versus one snake. It looks like they've, they've won. And you remember what God does? (laughs) God's snake eats their snakes. Just imagine watching that. Just imagine the swollen with conceit and the pride and the arrogance with these two men as they stood and watched our snakes outnumber your snake. And then, what's he doing? And God's snake eats their snakes. An amazing story. God says there's... there's There's people today in these last days in your church that are like these two men. 
Right, and they're there, they're at the service, and they're, they're dressed appropriately, and they're saying the right words, and, and maybe even miraculous things are happening around them. I mean, it looks to be the real deal. But then you find out that they're not who they say they were, and they're these kinds of men. But Paul ends with an encouragement to them. He ends with an encouragement. Because when we see this and we think, well, what are we going to do? I mean... There's people falling for this, and, and, and it looks sometimes, right, you've experienced it like people are getting away with things. They're just coming in and wreaking havoc, and they're spreading lies and rumors, and now all this destruction is left in their wake, and, and here they are, and they're gone now, and they're getting away, and then this is Paul's encouragement, but they will not get very far. Paul says they will not get very far. What's he saying? God's snake will eat their snakes. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now this isn't just a, yeah, God's going to get them back. And God's going to have the final word and We'll be vindicated and we'll have our revenge. They will not get very far. This is going to end for them just like it did for those sorcerers in Pharaoh's day. And we'll have the last word. That's not what he's getting at. The encouragement is that justice is going to happen, number one. Justice is going to happen. This is why we as Christians aren't worried about revenge. This is why when it looks like someone is getting away with something, we know and can trust that they will not get very far because they will face the great judge, God. So there's justice here, and that's good, and that's beautiful. But the other encouragement this is, is that God will preserve His people. It's like we looked at last week. He knows His flock. Christian, He knows your name. He cares for you. He loves you. Your name is graven on His hands. He knows the number of hairs on your head right now. Right now, as you sit here. He loves you and cares for you. He can provide for you. And He's going to make sure, if you're one of His, He's going to make sure you don't fall for this. He's going to protect you. He's going to preserve you. And He's going to keep you safe. That's God's job. Your job? Take it serious. Seriously enough to avoid such people. Seriously enough to evaluate yourself to see whether or not you are one of these people. Pray. And ask God to reveal every wicked way in me. And with that revelation, and with that momentary discouragement, turn to the cross. Turn to Jesus. Ask for mercy and for grace once again. Let me pray. And then let's have communion together as a church family. If you've got questions about how we do that, there's some words in your bulletin. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, thank you for the grace that you have lavished on us. Thank you for the love that you have poured out on us. We, your people, are so thankful, God, for who you are and what you've done. God, if there are people among us today who feel secure but should not be secure, we ask that you would rattle them today. And that you would you would give them insight into something that they have ignored for maybe a long time. That you would bring conviction of sin and then grant them repentance. For those of us, God, who examine ourselves and, and find ourselves believing the gospel and find ourselves loving you and find ourselves consumed with you. May we thank you for inclining our hearts toward you and not boast or brag about anything in us, but remember that anything we are, anything we've done is all of grace. Be glorified, Father, in this time as we take communion together and sing to you. As we remember the sacrifice of your son as our substitute on that cross so long ago. We pray this in his great name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.